tour guides have been answering questions about it for years. There's a peculiar display near the elevators in Notre Dame's main building, better known to the public as the Golden Dome. Up until recently, it was on the second floor where tours often stop. For those who haven't been, it's on the second floor rotunda where you can direct your gaze from the mosaic tile at your feet upward to the underside of the Golden Dome. But often, someone in the tour group will scan their surroundings and rest their gaze on a glass case containing an enormous gold crown. It's impossible to ignore and begs for an explanation. People are curious about this crown because of its size. 20 inches in diameter at its base, two and a half feet in the middle, and 20 inches tall. Many tour guides will offer a simple explanation and move on. Gotta keep a schedule, after all. Or they'll simply read the plaque inside the case that offers a bit of context. But there's more to this story than can be expressed in a passing comment on a campus tour or on a plaque. If you're curious about this large crown, keep listening. That curiosity is where our story begins. And as we'll see, curiosity is where it ends. You see, this crown in the glass case may not be the most famous piece of headwear the university has seen. Our story is about two crowns, one crime, and one unsolved mystery. I'm Andy Fuller, and you're listening to a special episode of Notre Dame Stories, The Great Crown Caper. If you want to know about the crown we'll call it the Rosary Crown for the rest of our story, you need to understand the relationship between the university and the Empire of France in the middle and late 1800s. Most people know that Notre Dame's founder, Father Edward Sorin, was French. What they may not know is how much Father Sorin loved being an American. When he arrived in this country in 1841, he famously kissed the ground at Port in New York. His first public celebrations on campus were timed to coincide with Independence Day. Soon it became tradition for South Bend residents to spend the nation's birthday at Notre Dame. When this country was embroiled in civil war, Soren dispatched seven priests to be chaplains in the Union Army, far more than his fledgling university could spare at the time. And Soren named Washington Hall after the American founding father he most admired. Yet for all this American pride, Soren's French roots ran deep. He famously took more than 40 transatlantic trips after founding Notre Dame, often returning to his home country to raise money for his small school. His efforts were aided by the fact Father Soren had a very important personal friend, Napoleon III, the Emperor of France. As it turned out, Napoleon was interested not just in helping his friend, but also in creating a sort of outpost of French culture in the American West. That meant that over the years, Napoleon III and his wife, the Empress Eugenie, would be very prolific benefactors of the university. And this is the context in which the Rosary Crown enters our story. 
1866, the university dispatched Father Joseph Carrier to France. Carrier was French-born and not long removed from his deployment as a chaplain in the army of Ulysses S. Grant. He was also a pioneer in science education at Notre Dame, and on the trip in question, Carrier was to procure specimens for the small museum on campus, some lab equipment, and other various items. He even secured an audience with the emperor himself. Overall, the trip was quite successful. Carrier secured more than 50 boxes of equipment and gifts for the university and a very large telescope that was eventually housed in the first observatory on campus. But there was one other bit of errand running Carrier was to do on this trip. He was to pick up a large crown fashioned by one of the most famous artisans in Paris. Yes, the rosary crown. It was made out of 23 pounds of silver and nearly two pounds of gold. Hundreds of precious stones lined the arches, mound, and cross at the top. Around the band, the crown featured images of the 15 mysteries of the rosary, stamped with the names and cities of residence of the benefactors who donated to make the piece possible. Quick side note for the history buffs. Among the more interesting names stamped on the crown is, quote, Mrs. General W.T. Sherman, St. Louis, Missouri. That would be Eleanor Ewing Sherman, wife of William Tecumseh Sherman. Eleanor was a devout Catholic, and the Shermans sent their children to Notre Dame and St. Mary's during the war. Eleanor lived in South Bend, and in fact, when the general came to collect his family at commencement in 1865, he delivered an extemporaneous commencement address. But back to the story. Carrier procured another crown on this trip, gifted to the university by the French first family, a gold crown from the Empress Eugenie. It was the crown Eugenie wore at her wedding to Napoleon III. Carrier returned to campus in time for the university's consecration to the Blessed Virgin in May 1866 during the Feast of Corpus Christi. And it's here that we begin to see just how important the rosary crown was in the life of Notre Dame. The rosary crown was designed to occupy space at the very top of the university. It was meant to be placed atop the head of the statue of the Virgin Mary, which would adorn the top of the dome on the university's brand new main building. It was a symbol of the devotion to faith that permeated the campus community. It was a monument and an offering, and yes, maybe a bit of a status symbol as well. The point is, more than any other single object, the crown was a source of pride for students, faculty, and staff alike. And that's probably part of the reason it never made it to the top of the statue. Father Soren took the rosary crown to Rome shortly after the consecration event, where it was blessed by Pope Pius IX. When Soren returned... It was decided this crown of gold and silver and precious stones may not handle the elements well on top of the university's tallest building. So, the rosary crown was to be placed on display indoors in the Sacred Heart Church, suspended over a similarly sized statue of the Blessed Virgin. As for Eugenie's crown, it would be similarly situated. It was placed atop a different statue of Mary nearby. It proved to be a fateful choice. In April 1879, the main building burned to the ground. The crowns were safe in the Sacred Heart Church, 
for now. The building now known as the Basilica of the Sacred Heart was a long time coming. In its earliest days, it was known as Sacred Heart Church, and it was seemingly always under construction or renovation. It took 10 years to build with constant changes to the plans. By the fall of 1886, workers were adding the Lady Chapel to the north side of the church. During the work, a large opening was formed over which workers nailed wooden boards in an effort to add a little more security. It didn't work. Early on the morning of October 6th, thieves pried the boards from the building and entered the church. They placed a ladder up against the wall and managed to take the rosary crown from its spot suspended above the statue. They didn't stop there. They managed to take a collection of other items, gold candelabras, a crucifix, jewels, anything that seemed valuable, including another crown. But we'll come back to that. The criminals made their way from campus south to downtown South Bend, and here is where the action starts to pick up. About 4 a.m., two off-duty South Bend police officers noticed three men walking near the Grand Trunk and Chicago train station. The men were carrying bundles and apparently looked rather suspicious. The officers asked where they were going, and one of the men said they had just arrived on the Lakeshore train and were waiting to take the Grand Trunk to Chicago. There was just one problem. No Lakeshore trains were arriving at that time. Knowing this, the officers asked the men to step into the train depot and have their bundles searched. At this, the men dropped the bundles and took off. The officers yelled for them to stop, then drew their guns and started firing. Two of the men got away. The third lay in the railroad tracks, seemingly groaning in pain. Turns out he had inexplicably faked being shot. There's no record as to why. Maybe he thought the officers would chase the other men and he could get away. At any rate, the officers picked up the man and led him to the train depot for questioning. And then they noticed something rather odd. His vest had a bunch of strange lumps, like it was concealing something. They unbuttoned the vest, and then the rosary crown tumbled out. They had twisted and mangled the crown for easier transport in the vest. When the crown hit the floor, it shattered. The suspect was taken to jail. He gave police the name George Bruce, but said he wasn't involved in any robbery. He said he'd just fallen in with the other two men on his way to the train station that early morning. At about 5 a.m., the religious community at Notre Dame began gathering at the Sacred Heart Church. They immediately noticed a robbery had taken place, and the placement of the ladder against the wall led their eyes upward to find, to their horror, the rosary crown was stolen. They telephoned the South Bend police, who told them a suspect was already in custody. The police returned the stolen items to campus. The university was aghast at the condition of the rosary crown. Its bands and arches were completely detached. Many of the jewels were broken off. The rosary beads were a tangled mess. The coverage of the robbery in the media is truly fascinating. The South Bend Tribune mixed in a bit of commentary in describing the events. To give you a flavor, 
there's this choice line in their story. The crown was seen and admired by thousands of people from all parts of the world, until stolen last night by miscreants whose impious hands destroyed its beauty forever. The campus magazine Scholastic gave voice to the mood of the university, quoting from their article on the crown and its theft. The associations connected with it, the memories which it recalled, the bright hopes of which it was the harbinger, gave it a value to the community at Notre Dame far more precious than what its costly material and artistic workmanship could give it in the eyes of others. Reading the coverage of the event makes one thing clear. It's difficult to overstate just how shocking and damaging this event was to the psyche of those at Notre Dame. This was a singular campus fixture, an offering to the Blessed Virgin given on the occasion of the university's consecration to her. Its loss was viewed as a real tragedy. The South Bend Tribune's story covering the robbery was picked up nationally. The New York Times, Washington Post, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, all of them ran accounts of the theft. It seemed as though the nation was grieving with the university. And it seemed the crown was lost forever. But not yet. The Scholastic reprinted its robbery piece a month later, and they included a very interesting footnote. A silversmith had been secured to attempt a restoration of the crown. It seemed like a long shot, and no further mention is made, but some time later, the university did in fact receive the refurbished piece. It sat on display in the sacristy of the church for a while, then was eventually moved to the main building, and then some time later, into the glass case that houses it to this day. If you get close to the crown today, you can see the evidence of the ordeal of 135 years ago. The arches are still bent, and there's wire and rope holding the whole thing together. But it's still striking in its beauty. If you visit the crown on the fifth floor of the main building, you'll notice that light streams through skylights above and hits the crown spectacularly. It's easy to imagine how it looked on display at the consecration event in 1866. The names of the benefactors who made the crown possible are still all clearly legible, including Eleanor Ewing Sherman. It's just one of the ways the rosary crown still connects to and is an integral part of the university's history. It's not a campus tour oddity. Given its backstory, its beauty, and its continued existence, the rosary crown is a campus treasure. But our story doesn't end here. If you track newspaper coverage of the robbery, you start to notice something peculiar. In the years and decades after the event, irregularities start to show up in the account. One newspaper story on the anniversary of the theft was based on the notion that the very first telephone call made from campus was the call made to South Bend police to report the theft at the church. Fascinating if true, but the article contained a boatload of just plain wrong information that makes the entire premise seem suspect. And there's another narrative that began to spring up. Several newspapers began reporting that the second crown stolen that fateful October morning was none other than the crown of the Empress Eugenie. This 
is almost certainly not the case. For starters, the South Bend Tribune article, written the same day as the robbery, identifies the second crown as a crown of silver made in this country and costing around $100. As we know, Eugenie's crown was made of gold and was most certainly not made in the United States. And there's something else. Scholastic, the campus magazine, never identified the second crown as that belonging to Eugenie, neither in their original coverage nor in the reprint of the story weeks later, which included the footnote about the restoration of the rosary crown. So, was the Eugenie crown back at the church, safe atop the smaller statue of Mary? No, it wasn't. The account of what befell Eugenie's crown might sound like a folk tale, and those who believe it might seem a bit credulous. But if you're curious, it's one heck of a story. It starts in the aftermath of the robbery. Apparently, some well-meaning individual was afraid the church would be looted again. Remember, the construction work was ongoing and the place had now shown itself to be rather insecure. So, this individual took the Eugenie crown and hid it in the campus laundry. After all, no thief is going to look in the laundry for something valuable. Well, there was a problem. This person never told anyone they hid the crown. And so it vanished from public view and the campus consciousness for an undetermined amount of time. Eventually, it turned up at Holy Cross Seminary, later called Holy Cross Hall. The building is no longer around, but it was situated along St. Mary's Lake until the 1980s. When the Eugenie crown arrived there, no one knew what it was. So it spent the next few years as a decoration on the altar. Then it became a prop in the annual Christmas play. In fact, this appears to be its common usage during this time. It was lent out for plays in Washington Hall, even locally in South Bend, but it was always returned to Holy Cross Hall, now to its place in the attic. The frequent handling of the crown caused it to wear over time, and by the 1920s, It fell out of the rotation as a stage prop and was eventually relegated to storage in the boiler room. One fateful day, the crown fell from the peg on which it was resting and fell to the ground. The jewels fell out and the whole thing by this point looked as if it had outlived its usefulness. An employee swept it into an ash pile. From there, it was loaded into a truck with other dirt and debris And as was common at the time, the truck backed into St. Mary's Lake and dumped its contents. The university learned of the mistake through bizarre happenstance. The employee apparently scooped up some of the jewels before depositing the crown in the trash. He probably thought they were polished pieces that looked rather interesting. It turns out this employee was from the Netherlands, He took a vacation home shortly thereafter and showed the pieces to his little sister. Then his sister had an idea. She thought it would be fun to play a prank on her fiancé. She showed him the pieces, claiming they were from another suitor. I hope the man had a sense of humor. Regardless, as fate would have it, the young man was a jeweler's apprentice. He had a hunch these pieces might be real, so he took them into his shop and verified their authenticity. They were diamonds. 
The employee sent word back to the university, but by then, it was too late. Now, as we said, it sounds like a piece of folklore, but many who were around campus in the 1930s and shortly after considered the tale of the Eugenie crown to be true. Even seminarians, many of whom actually used the crown and saw it hanging in the boiler room. And consider just two other pieces of information before forming your own opinion. At first, it seems rather unlikely that the university would lose track of a gift from a royal friend. But in 1933, the South Bend News Times reported that a six-foot bronze crucifix was uncovered during yet another renovation at the Church of the Sacred Heart. The crucifix was a gift of, you guessed it, Napoleon III. Here's a rather instructive line from that article. Quote, No one remembers when the cross was first missed. Many priests had heard of its being given to Notre Dame and wondered where it was. In other words, the Eugenie crown wouldn't have been the first royal gift to go missing without anyone noticing. And if you'll indulge us, maybe just one more thing to consider. Turns out there were indeed Dutch immigrants working at Notre Dame during the time in question. A baker called Brother Willebroord hailed from Holland and arranged to have others from his homeland join him to work here. And so, it's certainly possible that an employee from the Netherlands scooped up some remains from the Eugenie crown before it was dumped into the lake, where it may still remain. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of Notre Dame Stories. We'll get back to our normal structure next time. For now, just a reminder that Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our theme music is by Alex Mansour.